Good morning, Shades family. How are you doing this morning? Good. We are good to see you. Good to see a uh, kind of a new year start, school starting, and uh, we're seven weeks on a countdown moving into the worship center. And so uh, we're going to engage in a, a new series, a sermon series based on the life of Solomon. Now, when we think about Solomon, uh, he is someone we know a few things about, but uh, during these seven weeks, I believe we're going to learn some incredible lessons, not only about his life, but things that will apply to our own lives. Every person that God has placed in Scripture, I believe that when we study their life, there are things in their lives that God's wanting us to learn and to learn from and to be able to be even stronger in our own walk, in our relationship with God. And so that's where we will begin with these seven weeks. Now, we are, uh, are calling this uh, Solomon, uh, a thinker, builder, leader, and king. Uh, give props to Jacob Simmons for coming up for the name for the series. We threw it all out, and uh, that's what uh, they've uh, kind of put that out. And I said, man, that sounds good, Jacob. So, because he is a thinker, the writer of Proverbs, and he is a builder, he built the temple, and he is a great leader, and uh, he led Israel at some of their greatest times ever, and he was the king over this amazing united monarchy. And so, just to put it all in perspective, when you look at the history of the nation of Israel, you go back to the Old Testament times, look at the history of the nation of Israel, and if you started a thousand years before Jesus was born... They had a first king, his name was Saul. Saul was chosen by God. Saul began to turn his back on the ways of God. And God was displeased with Saul, so he says, I've got to choose someone else. And so he chose David. And God loved David. It says David was a man after God's own heart. And he was a warrior king. And during that time, they were fighting battles. And as they were fighting battles, he was securing the land and was an incredible warrior, a great leader, and a man of God. But then there had to be the discussion as to who will be the heir to David. Because God promised David, there will always be an heir of yours on the throne and will take it all the way down to where the eternal king one day will come from your lineage. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And so who will be the next heir? And it turns out that that heir is Solomon. But to get to Solomon, it's an amazing story. I want to start the message by just giving you his resume. To, I want you to be wowed by Solomon as I have been wowed by Solomon. So if we're looking at his resume, it would start in 1 Chronicles 29, 25. Verse should be on the screen. It says, and the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel, and he bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Royal majesty beyond anything that Saul had, beyond anything that David had. So what was it about Solomon? First Kings chapter 4, 29 through 30. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote the book of Proverbs. And it says he spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. 
998 more than Michael Adler. So he's written 1,005 songs. And, and when you begin to just put that in perspective, if you look over a list of the greatest songwriters of all time, Paul McCartney is usually in the top three. And Paul McCartney, I think he's around 78 years of age. He's written not quite 1,000. And so Solomon's got 1,005 songs. He could talk about anything. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon, that's the big ones, to the hyssop, small bush that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. If you put it in today's language, you would sleep with your cell phone next to your ear waiting to get a tweet from Solomon because the wisdom that he would have would be in incredible. People would travel long distances just to sit at his feet. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, so King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. Richer and wiser. Take all the kings of the earth during this time. He's the richest one of all. He's got all, we got more wealth than anybody else. He was wiser than anyone. And as you read, he led during a time of peace. There really were not very many battles going on. It was a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity. And he was the king. One of the greatest kings and rulers in all of history. And we want to look at his life and want to learn from his life. There are many great things about the Bible. But I believe one of my favorite things about the Bible is that all the heroes of the Bible, they will tell you warts and all who they were. And as you look through the life of Solomon, it's not going to be a story that starts out beautiful and ends just beautiful with no problems in between. You begin to see some chinks in the armor that he has, and we will learn from both his successes and also in some of his failures. So, so how did he become king? That's what I want to start this morning. How did he become king? Well, it's an incredible story. And the way that he became king is really built around second chances and significant purpose. Second chances and significant purpose. I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel comes after 1 Samuel. So in the Old Testament, when you're starting over here, we've been in Leviticus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus. You know, we're over in that area. If you get Leviticus, just keep on turning, heading towards the New Testament, and you will find 1 Samuel, find 2 Samuel. If you get to Kings, you've gone a little bit too far. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 12 is going to be the story of David. But uh, before I can get you 12, I've just got to give you a quick uh, Reader's Digest version of chapter 11. David, great king, man after God's own heart, um, was just on a roll. Everything was going great for him. And then when you get to chapter 11, it says that when the kings went off to war, David decided not to go off to war. And he made a tactical decision that would have negative consequences for the rest of his life. And when everyone else was doing their job, he was not doing his job. And he went out and he stood out there late in the afternoon as the sun's kind of going down. He sees this beautiful woman who's bathing out there. She's not doing anything wrong. She's doing what she always does. He sees her. She's attractive. He lusts for her. He finds out what her name is. And they said her name is Bathsheba. And she's married to Uriah, one of your mighty men who's fighting that battle that you didn't go to. And he said, well, bring her over to my house tonight for dinner. He brought her over to the house. Uh, He had a one-night stand with her and then let her go back home. Turns out Bathsheba comes back and says, I'm pregnant. 
And so now Son David's kind of in a fix because here this woman's pregnant, but her husband's off on the battlefield. So he brings her husband, Uriah, to come back to, uh, to where he was and come back into the city of Jerusalem. And he just met with him a little bit, kind of got an update for what's happening on the field. And he said, I'll tell you what, Uriah, you just head home, be with your wife, and, and then you can go back to the field tomorrow. And uh, next day, the people came around and told uh, David, they said, Uriah never went home with his wife. He just slept out here. So he pulled Uriah in. He said, why didn't you go home and sleep with your wife? He says, listen, you know, I got to tell you, all my men are sleeping out in, in, the, uh, in camps and they're sleeping in the open air. And why should I, as a soldier, get the privilege of going back to sleep at my home? So no, I, that's why I stayed here. He said, we'll stay one more day. So he had him stay another day. And, uh, and he went, he said, come and eat a big meal. Gave him a big, good meal, gave him a lot of wine. And really, in essence, he just got him drunk. And he just kind of turned him and said, hey, why don't you go on head home, spend the night with your wife, and then you can go back tomorrow. But even in that state, he didn't do it. He stayed right there. So now David's in a real conundrum. So he ended up doing the next step. He wrote a letter that he was, that Uriah was to give to his commander. And in the letter it said, attack the walls. And as you attack the enemy, as soon as you get them up there and put Uriah on the front, and when he gets to the front, sound retreat and let everybody back off. And in essence, it's a death sentence for Uriah. And Uriah, sealed message, hands it to Joab, the commander-in-chief. He gives the order. Sure enough, they make the attack. Then he sounds a retreat. Uriah is caught in a crossfire. He is killed. Well, when he's killed, word comes back to Bathsheba. And she's in tears and she's mourning. And after a season of mourning, David, the benevolent king, says, tell you what, I've got, um, uh, my heart goes out to Bathsheba. Uriah was one of my good men. So why don't she come and live with us? And so he brings her in and lets her be uh, a part of his, uh, of his group there. And she is now his responsibility. Feels pretty good. Uh, baby is born and he feels like everything is fine. But in chapter 11, verse 27, it says, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done, it displeased the Lord. Because God knew the cover-up. And so God knows the cover-up. Things have been going on for a little over nine months, and, um, and David's just been tracking along. And then you come into chapter 12. And in chapter 12, I'll just tell you about the first six verses, there's a prophet by the name of Nathan, very brave prophet. <laughs> and he got a word from the Lord and he came to David and he sat down with David and said, let me tell you something. And it's a story, but yet he tells it as if this is happening right now in your kingdom. And he said, there's a man here in the kingdom who doesn't have very much. He's got a small family and he's got one little lamb. And he's had this lamb since the lamb was just a baby. And he loves this lamb. This lamb is like part of the family. And at dinner time, when they will all sit around the table and eat, the lamb gets little morsels off the table, kind of like your dog does, you know, when you're feeding your dog there. Well, he's feeding the lamb. He even says that he drinks out of his cup. Yuck. But, uh, you know, he, he gives him some little water or whatever. And, and then he holds him at night. And I, it's just like what we would do with our dogs or puppies. And this is the lamb that he just loves. But now there's another man who's a very wealthy landowner who lives up the road, who's got a huge herd of sheep. 
and a visitor, a traveler comes in town. And when the traveler comes in town, the rich guy says, I got to make a good meal for him. I don't want to take any sheep out of my herd. So he goes down to this poor individual who's got the one lamb that he loves, takes it from him, kills it, makes a meal out of it, and serves it to him. Well, David hears that, and he just goes ballistic. And he says, that man deserves death. And then he also needs to do a fourfold payback for the lamb that he took. And in one of the most powerful verses of Scripture is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan the prophet looked at David and says, you are the man. You are the man. Now listen to what he says to him. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Because you see, when David was being chosen by God, Saul tried to kill David. And so he ran for years and years, but yet God delivered him. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He said, I've given you all these things. And if there's anything else you wanted, all you had to do was ask. But yet, I get to verse 9. Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He didn't physically kill him, but he set him up to die. So he says, you set up his murder over here. In verse 10, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall be with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And even in verse 14, he says, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, what he just told them, he says, David, God knows the sin that you've committed, and there's consequences to it, and I'm going to share you what they are. He said, really, you've broken a number of commandments over here, and you've committed adultery with Bathsheba. You've murdered her husband, and so because of that, there is going to be the sword will never depart your house. What he means by that, there will be rebellion and discord and uh, unsettlement in your household from now on. And when you begin to read about what happened to his sons, brothers murdered brothers. One of the brothers rebelled against his own father. And his father had to run for his life. All of these things that you see, all this rebellion ties back to this one event that took place. And then he said, what you did in secret, I'm going to do in public. There's going to be one who's going to take all of your wives and they will publicly defile them. And they did. It was his son, Absalom. And his son, Absalom, 
who created a civil unrest who was wanting to unseat his father in a step of showing total disdain for his father, took all of his wives up there on the roof and defiled them. And he said, everything that you had done in private, that will be done in public. And then the third is the child that Bathsheba is carrying, that child that is born, that child will not live. And he said, these are consequences for what has taken place. So he lays this out to David in what's David's response, verse 13. Verse 13, he says this. I have sinned against the Lord. First words out of his mouth. I have sinned against the Lord. It was a genuine remorse and repentance and of one who has a penitent heart and said, I have sinned. You are so right. And I've sinned against the Lord. And uh, when he said that, the reason it's so powerful is that he didn't try to make excuses. If you look back in the history when Saul, uh, when they came to Saul and they approached him about a sin that he had committed, he began to make excuses and would never, never really own up to it. But when David was presented this by Nathan, he just looked him right in the eye and said, I've sinned and I've sinned before the Lord. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't lash out at Nathan. He wasn't angry at Nathan for pointing this out. He didn't sit there and take executive privilege. He didn't say, well, all the other kings are doing it. I think I should do it. He didn't play that, hey, you know, God has said, I'm a man after God's own heart. I'm going to play that card. Do I get a pass on this one? He didn't do any of that. There was never any type of, hey, uh, it was too difficult, this temptation was too rough, whatever. It was none of that. It was just straight up, he owed the sin, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And when he owed up to it, then God gave him instant forgiveness. Look what he says in verse 13. After David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has taken your sin and has separated it. There's a scripture that says that God will take our sins and move them as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember our sins no more. And that's what he said right there, David. God has taken your sin, and he's moved it, and he's separated. He's moved it to a distance, and he remembers it no more. And he also said that out of God's grace, your life will be spared. Because you yourself said that man should die and you are the man and God is going to spare your life. And with this forgiveness that David gets, there's something else that comes and that's a peace that comes. See, he was a man after God's own heart. And if you're a man after God's own heart or if you take it in today's world and say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim that you've received Christ as your savior, that means that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart to reside in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is the one, he is the one who convicts us of sin. And he's the convicts us of sin that whenever we do sin, there's this conviction and there is a guilt that holds on. And it takes the joy of our salvation away from us. And it is something that weighs us down. And this is exactly what you would expect to happen with David, the man after God's own heart, that he has been living with this guilt and this loss of peace, and has haunted his soul, and has weighed down his life. And David writes two psalms 
about this particular situation, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And in Psalm 51, this is one of the statements he makes. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's ever before me. I can hide it from everyone else, but I can't hide it from God. And it's sticking right here in my chest and in my crawl. And he said, there's a guilt that I feel here. Psalm 32, verse 3 and 5, look what he says. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. This has been going on for nine months. This has been going on for nine months. And then you get verse 5. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Wow. There's such a sense of agony and pain in verses 3 and 4, but in verse 5, he experiences God's forgiveness. The guilt is gone, and the peace and the joy, they are restored. You see, God, in his love and compassion, instantly forgives David, and the guilt is gone, and all of a sudden, he has peace within. But listen, church. But God did not remove the negative consequences of the sin that Nathan highlighted in verses 10 through 12 in verse 14. I read a statement today where, uh, this week where a man said, sin that has been forgiven and forgotten by God may still leave human scars. The consequences of David's sin were irreversible. It's irreversible. And we need to keep this in mind because, you see, there will come a time when you face a temptation to sin and you will say to yourself, well, I know this is wrong, but if I do this and I give in to this temptation, I can always uh, ask for forgiveness and just apologize to God. Sometimes an apology is not enough. When God forgives you and restores your relationship to him, he does not automatically eliminate all the consequences of your wrongdoing. We must remember that by committing a sin against God, we may set into motion events whose consequences cannot be reversed. And this is what David was going to experience for the rest of his life. He was forgiven of the sin. Peace came back into his heart. His guilt was removed. But yet, there were consequences from that act that had rippling effects through the remainder of his life. So what happened? Well, verses 15 through 23, the child is born, the child gets ill. And David fasts and prays and puts his face before the Lord. And he says, please heal this child. Please don't take his life. Allow this child to live. And as he prays, he prays for about seven days and then the child dies. And then when the child dies, then all of a sudden, David, he comes off his fast. He cleans himself up. He begins to uh, uh, eat some food. And uh, the people are looking at him and saying, whoa, why aren't you still mourning? And he made that statement that so many of us have used as we've stood at a graveside, especially of a graveside of a child, that he said in verse 23, he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. He says, I shall go to him. That child, that baby has stepped into eternity. And he says, I will be able to go to him. And I will spend eternity with him. And so then it comes, what are you going to do now? He says, well, I've got to move on from here. 
I've got to keep on being a king. I've got to keep on with my family. And so he comes. He says he comforts Bathsheba. Uh, they get together, and they have a son. And he says here that his son is named Solomon. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, went into her, lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Called his name Solomon. And then it says, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. Now, I don't know about you, but do you get nervous if Nathan's coming to your house again? <laughs> you know? How, how would you like to be sitting there and you're holding the baby and then someone says, hey, Nathan's here to see you. Hide the baby. Uh, don't tell him what's going to happen. But this time, Nathan had a great word from the Lord because it says, and the Lord loved him. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. I didn't know this until I was studying it, that Solomon had a second name, Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. And in essence, what Nathan was doing is saying, this is the heir to the throne. This is the heir to the throne. This is the one that God has chosen. This is the one that's beloved of God. Now, you know, listen, I've been, I've been going to church for 60 years. And I know I've read the Bible, I and mean, I guess just skipped over Jedediah. I never knew Solomon had a middle name, if you want to call it that, Jedediah. And he got me thinking on, uh, how many of you as parents, that when you really get upset at your child, you call them a different name, uh, like you call their full name on there? Uh, and, uh, you know, when they're really just kind of acting up or so, it's like for us, it'd be for us. If my daughter's Lauren Wood, and if she'd do something, go, Lauren Brindley Wood, what are you thinking about? You ever done that? In prayer, just raise your hand if you've done. Whoa, all over the place. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, we call that. I was wondering if they did that with the Jedediah name. You ever thought about that? I was just wondering. You know, David comes home, asks Bathsheba how things are going, and she says, let me tell you about Jedediah, the beloved of the Lord. Sheesh, let me tell you what he got into today over here. Uh, I would say he's acting like a wise guy, but that's, that's low-hanging fruit. Okay, so... Um, so, uh, so also we're introduced into Solomon, and Solomon's born. But in this birth, folks, this is where we want to land the plane. In this, you see two things. You see second chance, and you see significant purpose. Second chance. And I put beside it David and Bathsheba. And second chance applies to them and applies to every one of us that's here today. Together, they were married, and they had a child that would be an heir to the throne and through whose lineage Jesus Christ, the eternal king, would be born. God chose Solomon to come out of a relationship, a union of David and Bathsheba. So let me give you some things about second chance. Number one, all sins are covered by the cross. No sin is too big for God to forgive. All sins are covered by the cross. No sin is too big for God to forgive. The key word is that first word, all sins. There are some of you today that are agonizing over past sins that you believe God could never forgive you. And because of that, you put your life in neutral with no hope of ever moving forward. I want to remind you that the cross covers all sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Don't put your life in neutral. Don't let the enemy convince you that because of one sin or certain sins that you did, that all of a sudden there's no forgiveness. There is forgiveness of all sins. Number two is this, second chances come with penitent hearts. 
Second chances come with penitent hearts. When you recognize your sin, you're remorseful, you're repentant, you humbly come to God and you ask for his forgiveness, he will forgive you. Now listen, it comes with penitent hearts. I'm not talking about, I messed up, I'm just going to apologize to God. I'm not going to make any lifestyle changes, I'm not going to do anything different, I'm just going to keep apologizing to God. Listen, David said in Psalm 51, when he talked about all my sin is before me and praying that God would, would wash away his sin, he then said this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. I don't want to stay the same way I am. I want you to create this new heart in me, a clean heart, and renew that right spirit. And it says that God desires a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It is with a penitent heart that we come to him and ask for forgiveness and say, God, I want to make some lifestyle changes there. I also want to give you a caveat here, and that doesn't mean that all the consequences will go away. Doesn't mean that all the consequences go away. But it does mean that God will provide you a second chance for a new beginning. God will provide you a second chance for a new beginning. And third of all is this, God's ways are unorthodox in order to display his grace and glory. God's ways are unorthodox in order to display his grace and glory. And this is why I even started this whole series. This is what I've been struggling with for months because I kept having the question, out of all the people that God could have chosen to be an heir to the throne, why did he take a son from David and Bathsheba? Just so you'll know, David had seven other wives that we have names for, and then there's nameless others. And I doubt any of them had the past that he and Bathsheba had, and so it just didn't make sense that he would take that union and have a, uh, have a child born from him that would be the king. David had 19 sons, 19 sons. I just didn't understand But God's ways are unorthodox in order to display his grace and glory. And I'm going to explain it because the second thing is Solomon. Why Solomon? The tradition of that was you always go with the oldest child. That would be the king. You know, Solomon was number 10 out of the 19 sons. He was just middle of the pack. And, little scoop here, David and Bathsheba had four sons. And Solomon was the fourth So they had already had three other sons, and he's the fourth son. He's the youngest of the group. And even as the youngest, God says, that's who I want. Now, I just got to tell you this. Being the youngest child in my family, I understand why you picked the youngest, okay? Uh, God's favor is on the youngest. I was going to do a lot of mileage on that, but I knew one of the smart Alex would raise their hand and say, I think Jesus was the oldest in his family. Is that correct? And you are correct. Okay. But he, he, God uses unorthodox ways, and he uses unorthodox ways because he wants to remind people of his grace and of his glory. This is an amazing reminder for David and Bathsheba that they had truly been forgiven, that they were recipients of God's grace, that they had a new life and they had a new beginning. And every time they would look at that son Solomon, they still are carrying the pain of the death of that first child because they know it was their sin. That was a consequence of their sin. But in the midst of that pain, they could also take a look at Solomon and see that God has forgiven them and that through his grace has allowed a new life and a new beginning. And it's there for every one of us. And the last thing is this, significant purpose, and that's Solomon. I want you to write this last thing down, and that is regardless of your beginning, God has a purpose in your life. Regardless of your beginning, God has a purpose in your life. 
no matter your circumstances, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And too often, because of how we started in life, we've used that as a stopper to keep us from moving forward. You may have been born into uh, a family of abusive parents. It may have been a broken home. You may be born with a disability. You may have parents who had a sordid past. You may be constantly hearing the whispers about your family uh, from others. You just need to know that God can use you. I mean, Solomon was born to David and Bathsheba. And you say, well, no one probably knew what happened. Really? I think people knew. There were guards that were there at David's, uh, where David was living, that said, hey, Uriah never went home. And, uh, and then she spent this time of mourning. Then all of a sudden, uh, they come together. She becomes their wife. Somebody's counting the days. And they said, hmm, I don't know. And I remember the time when she came to dinner with him. People put stuff together. People talk. Whispers happen. But Solomon, even with all of that, and you're the youngest, you're not the oldest. Beginning is different. Guess what he did? God used him. And he had an incredible purpose for his life. Just as Solomon was a reminder to David and Bathsheba of God's grace and forgiveness, Jesus' death on the cross is a constant reminder of our sins and the judgment that it took because of our sins. But then when I look at the cross and the empty tomb, I'm also reminded of God's incredible grace and forgiveness and that he forgives us of our sins and brings us into his family when we make that decision to receive him as our Savior and as our Lord. So as we begin this study on Solomon, realize there are second chances for everyone to have a restorative, repentive heart, and that no matter what your beginning is, God has a purpose for your life. And as we look to what Jesus has done for us on the cross and for the empty tomb and how he's raised from the dead, he has provided us the forgiveness that we need, the platform that we need to be able to live for him victoriously. And may we take that. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this day for things that we learn of those in the Bible. And Father, we realize that the characters in the Bible, that they are flawed just like we are flawed. But yet throughout all of their flaws, you continue to show us your mercy and your grace. And we pray today that you will speak to each of our hearts and help us to move forward in our lives, not to be held back by the lies of Satan to say that because you did this or because you did that, you can never be used by the Lord. Lord, help people to have a freedom today to know that there is forgiveness at the cross. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.